Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I want to talk about the TV show The Americans. There's this TV show called The Americans. I want to talk about the the psychology of it, the morality of it, and other kinds of things. And then I also just want to talk about the things I always talk about when I talk about these sorts of things, like the director and the actors and all that kind of stuff. But first, let me tell you something. I've been hearing about this TV show since it came out. I remember people talking about it when it came out in, in 2013, which for four years ago. And there were rave reviews. But I remember people, it was a, it was a select few of people who would talk about it. It, was a, it wasn't a lot of people. It wasn't like Game of Thrones where like everyone was talking about it. It was a select few of people that I respected that were saying, this is actually one of my favorite shows. But at the time, I didn't have cable, and so and and there and it wasn't available on Netflix or anything. I didn't really have a way of watching it, so I just kind of gave up. Plus, the way that it was described to me made it sound boring. Actually, you know, it was described to me in this way that I thought, well, that sounds really interesting, but it also sounds kind of boring, and so I just avoided it and kept avoiding it <laughs> until. I can't remember what sort of sparked it, but I think I, I, someone finally just said, look, this is one of my favorite shows of all time, if not my favorite TV show of all time. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll watch this stupid show. <laughs> and I started watching it starting from season one. And right away, I was completely hooked, just totally blown away. The, the crappy thing is that I, I've been avoiding it for the past four years. But the cool thing is that I now had five seasons I could watch in a row, right? I could binge five seasons. So because I'd waited for so long to watch the show, I could I could watch, you know, so many shows all at once, which is what I did. So every opportunity I watched a screen f- to do something, I was always watching The Americans. Sometimes... I couldn't stop watching. It'd be late at night and I'd be like, okay, time to go to bed. And I'd be like, ah, just one more episode. And then I'd be, ah, I got to find out what happens. It's a, it's a wonderful show. And so today I want to talk about that. I I don't really have that much to say in terms of psychology. (laughs) Honestly, I just love the show and I just want to talk about it. This is the psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor and a watcher of the Americans. This episode is going to have a lot of spoilers. So, and this show is, uh, it's, it can be spoiled. Although I wonder if you kind of knew what, where things are going, if it would completely ruin. I mean, there's definitely twists and turns in the story that um, can be spoiled, but the, 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 the TV show is so, masterfully made that even if you knew what was happening, my guess is it would still be enjoyable. But anyway, if you plan on watching this show at all, I would not listen to this episode until you're done. The spoil uh, at this point when I am recording this, I think there's just a few more episodes left in season five. So I'm going to be referring to things up until that point. Although I'm not going to go into super detail on that because I just don't think it's that necessary. So, um, so, but I will be spoiling some major parts of the overarching stories. Uh, 
Okay, so let's talk about some of the psychology that is presented in this TV show. One thing is, is that they depict Est, E-S-T, Est. We did an entire episode not so long ago in which we did a full rundown of Est and Landmark. And it's basically a, um, I think they call it like human growth movement or something, Um, human potential movement. I can't remember the exact movement in the 70s and 80s. But basically, Est and Landmark are these seminars that you go to. They're like classes in a sense. And they're more like personal therapy than they are like a class. And so you go to the, you go to these seminars and they're usually all day long, usually over a weekend. And the presenter will talk about how to live authentically, how to live the life that you want to live and how to evaluate the life that you want to live and how to not give in to societal norms about what you're supposed to do and, and, all these kinds of things. And it's big on confronting you in terms of the BS that uh, limits your flexibility in terms of having the life that you want. And in the episode that we talked about it, um, I presented all the kinds of pros and cons to this because they, they have a, and you know, I, I apologize to my landmark listeners out there, but they both have a, sort of pushy marketing uh, uh, technique in which they harangue their uh, members, the the students in these seminars, they harangue them to drag other people in. And that's a major part of their model is not only do we provide a probably a very helpful service to actual human beings, but we also will, we also have a pretty, uh, sleazy sales technique in which we tell everyone that that they should drag people in, and of course that's not their language, but that's the reality. So, but they don't really depict depict that part of Est in it. They they depict probably the the good parts of Est, uh, which is related to Landmark. Um, they also, in terms so so, in terms of psychology. Uh, and Est in this TV show, they they show not only for the the characters how this seminar actually is related to their own mental health and their own traumas that they've been through, but it also shows you what a lot of people were going through in the 80s and the way that people didn't really go to therapy, right? Uh, as much as they do today and how a lot of people would go to these est seminars because it, it wasn't as stigmatized because it's a seminar, you know, it's a class. It's not, it's not therapy. I'm not crazy. I'm just going to this est thing. So it's, it's interesting in that way. Um, they also depict the way churches were a part of people's lives much more so back then in American lives. Of course, today in America, a lot of people are still heavily involved with their churches. But in the 80s, churches were were still very much the norm in terms of families being, uh, uh, you know, heavily involved in churches. And, and so they show that. And I love this show because they show a very nuanced perspective of Est and of 
and of religion. It would be so easy to write in this very black and white way about religion or about Est and paint it in this all good light or all bad light. And they don't do that. They they depict it in this very careful, nuanced way that I think is responsible to these areas and also um, and also just really interesting to watch. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the main psycho- psychological uh, elements of this TV show is the way in which Philip and Elizabeth, I'm going to go more into like the producers and the directors later, but so one of the main psychological angles that I can talk about with this TV show is the way in which Philip and Elizabeth uh, work their way into other people's lives. So there's regular Americans and these two Russian spies are uh, trying to manipulate people to, to get them to do things that they want them to do so that they can infiltrate certain things and get information and da, 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 da. And the, the most interesting story in the Americans, again, remember, I'm going to spoil things. So if you're going to watch this, go watch it. I'm telling you, it's a great show. Then come back. It, the most the most interesting example of this of this way in which these spies work their way into people's lives is the relationship between Philip and Martha. Martha is Agent Gad's secretary at FBI. You know that as if you had told me before I watched this TV show, if you had told me, you know, in this TV show they're gonna have a story in which an FBI employee who is who works in the counterintelligence office, which is the office that actually is trying to catch spies. So that's, she works in a small office in Washington, D.C., which is focused on trying to catch spies. And if you told me that one of the Russian spies is going to manage to marry this, this secretary and managed to get her to to bug the office, you know, so that the spies can listen in on what they're saying, and managed to bring home files so that the spies can actually see exactly what the FBI is doing. If you if you told me that that was a story in this in this TV show, I'd say, well, that's stupid, you know, like that's ridiculous. People aren't that dumb, right? Um, especially if when you add in the fact that um, the spy acts like he's another FBI agent and 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 also if you added in the fact that the spy is still married with kids uh, himself in his in his regular life and he just spends time with Martha like once or twice a week and he he goes to her house and she, and she's like when are we going to go to your place and and how come we're married now and you and you don't live with me and you know and and the way that he manages that if you had told me all that stuff I would say that's dumb that that TV show is stupid but the show really shows you how this process would absolutely work and it absolutely did work in history over the span of years and that's the the beauty of the show too. I'm just I'm going to talk very glowingly about this show, by the way. But over the span of years, uh, similar to shows like Game of Thrones or something, there are are storylines 
that begin in season one that don't pay off really until season five, or they don't, they're still unfolding in season five. And so the show over the span of years in the TV show world and in real life over the seasons, Philip slowly works his way into her life. He slowly convinces her of things that seem absurd on the surface when you look at it from afar, but each moment is understandable. He, he originally goes to her acting like he's an FBI agent who, who just wants to talk with her about her experiences at work because he's doing an investigation. It's just this minor, uh, minor con, you know, and, and so it, it's low risk. So he starts there as an FBI agent who is just asking her a few innocent questions. And then we get to a later point in the story where they're married and she's living in his fake apartment and she is supplying him with, with tape recordings of, of bugs in the office. She's supplying him with, with files from the office and, she, and, and she's giving him all this information and she's not a Russian spy, right? She is a red blooded American who works for the FBI and doesn't want to help the Russians. And so, you know, how do you get from point A to point, you know, Z and the show just slowly walks you through that. And if you haven't seen the show again, go watch the show. Cause I'm going to, ru- I'm ruining it for you right now. But it, if you know, if you hadn't watched the show, you'd be like, well, that sounds boring, but I'm here to tell you it's actually really well-written and well, it's just, it's so interesting. And because all the while, Philip is trying to make Martha feel as though he loves her. Uh, he's trying to make his, he, he doesn't say his name is Philip to Martha. He says his name is Clark. And all the while, so he never intimidates her he never or very rarely intimidates her. He, every step of the way, he is being loving. He's being thoughtful. He's being empathetic. He's being caring and slow and flexible. And he just, he just slowly, you know, does his job. And on some level, and they kind of reveal this later on, Clark actually has legitimate feelings for Martha you know, if you spend one or two nights a week, you know, and they would have sex and they would, you know, spoon at night and they would, you know, talk about work and stuff. Clark or Philip, um, and Philip isn't even his real name. Real, his real name is Misha from from uh, the Soviet Union. But Philip, he has feelings and he he has a heart and he has legitimate feelings for her. So it's this weird mixture in him. So I thought that that was a really excellent portrayal of what this sort of thing looks like. And it's not just in spy movies or spy, real life spy situations. This happens also in marriages, right? Slowly someone sucks you into their life and five years later, you find yourself in a situation that you never would have agreed to if you knew that that's where it was headed. But each step along the way, 
It's just tiny little steps in that direction. People who find themselves in deeply violent relationships and controlled relationships with their spouse or other kinds of things like that. This show really shows you what, what that can look like. Also, um, Alison Wright, she plays the actress of Martha. She is an amazing actress. Uh, Matthew Reese, the guy who plays Philip, is uh, probably one of my favorite actors of all time now after watching the show, and I would say Alison Wright is up there too. And the way that they write for her character is so visceral. You, you really feel her feelings, and you really empathize, empathize with her decisions. All right, so what other psychological thing can we talk about? Well, we can talk about trauma. There's a ton of trauma in this show. Both Philip and Elizabeth have been traumatized. Philip was traumatized by bullies, we learn, when he was a kid, and then he's further traumatized when he brutally murders one of the bullies with his own hands. During their training, Elizabeth and Philip, Philip are both put through a lot of difficult kinds of things. Elizabeth was raped by her superior. Um, Philip later kills that guy, uh, by the way, when he defects. But they were both made to have sex with people. And I find this to be extremely interesting. They, Philip and Elizabeth, as they are being trained, part of their training is that they have to have sex with a bunch of people, including people that they would not be attracted to normally, like people of the same sex and really old people. So they show this very brief flashback scene in which uh, it's made, it's Philip. I don't think they show Elizabeth doing this, but Philip is made to, you know, have sex with a woman his age and he's made to have sex with a elderly woman and then an elderly man. And, it's just so – and you think, what? And then you think, well, yeah, I guess you would need to do that as part of your training because a big part of Philip and Elizabeth's uh, uh, effectiveness has to do with the ability to seduce people, the ability to have sex with people and not be repulsed, the ability to act like they're enjoying themselves. And so I thought that was interesting. Also, they kill a lot of people in this show. And that, we know, has a massive trauma effect on you. When it's, it's, it's a little bit of an unknown psychological process, but when you kill someone, you are traumatized. They almost never portray this in media and in stories. But when you kill someone, it is, it is massively traumatizing to you. Now, some people recover pretty quickly from that difficulty, and some people don't. In some ways, killing someone is more traumatizing than having a friend die or, or even yourself being injured, because it's you, the, it's you are the one who are the perpetrator of this terrible act. And so they have killed a lot of people, which is is very traumatizing and it starts to take a toll on Philip because Elizabeth is, it's hard to know what Elizabeth's personality is like. She's either psychopathic and doesn't have as much empathy for other human beings as Philip does. I suspect that's actually not true because she exhibits a lot of empathy towards Philip and her own kids. I think it's the second option, which is that Elizabeth is extremely dedicated to the cause 
and Philip isn't so much so. So when Philip kills someone, he's much more traumatized by it, which actually does play a role. If your trauma has meaning, you know, when Elizabeth kills an innocent American, she sees that as a part of the mission, a part of a very deeply felt mission that she has that's authentic to her soul, whereas Philip is not so sure. And so when Philip kills an innocent person, he he's already ambivalent about the mission anyway. And so when he kills an innocent person, he he wonders if he is, in fact, one of the evil people. Also, the psychology in this show, you can talk about the stuff that they had to do, like when Philip has to pull out Elizabeth's tooth, um, because she, you know normally she would just go to the dentist, but she can't go to the dentist because the FBI agents have asked all the dentists in the area to report anyone who needs their jaw looked at. And so slowly her her tooth is um, her mouth is infected and it's getting worse and worse over time because she's not she's not going to the doctor for it. This scene is just so amazing. The entire scene, there's no dialogue and it's a long scene. There's not a single word spoken in that long scene, but there's tons of emotion. And all of the all of the drama is portrayed in the facial expressions of Philip and Elizabeth, played by Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese. And it's just amazing. I I, I want to actually just kind of describe this scene because it's one of my favorite scenes of all time that's ever been made. <laughs> So she she starts off almost getting caught by the FBI. There's this precursor scene in which she is being tailed in her car and she escapes, um, you know, very uh, luckily with a lot of help from other KGB people. But she she arrives home and she's very tired. She's visibly shaken by what just happened and she's very fatigued. It's late at night. Philip has been waiting up for her because he's been worried about her. And she opens the door. The lights are dark. The kids are probably upstairs in bed. And the national anthem is playing on the TV because it's late at night. And uh, for you young people, you probably have no idea about this. But for people my age and older, you absolutely remember every channel would not have programming at 3 a.m. They didn't have infomercials back then. They just had... They just had static. So at like two in the morning or something, uh, it depended on the channel and depended on the era. But, you know, say NBC, the local affiliate at 2 a.m., they would just turn off their their programming and stop broadcasting and then pick it back up at, you know, five or six a.m. Because they figured why broadcast when no one's watching. And so what they would do is they would play the national anthem and then usually have some kind of like American, you know, fuck yeah kind of visuals like a bald eagle, bald eagle and the mountains and Washington DC and uh, I don't know, the Lincoln Memorial monument or whatever. And so the national anthem would play and then the channel would go off. And so this national anthem is playing and uh, and it's juxtaposed these two Soviet spies, which is just, 
you know, just so interesting to me. Philip goes up to her and is so happy to see her, but he also knows that she's been through a lot. And so he just hugs her. And again, no words. And they have this really good hug. There's a lot of really good hugs in this, in this TV show. A lot of times in, in movies and TVs, when TV shows, when they have hugs, they don't really do it the way people actually hug. And the way that they hug in this show is very realistic to me. And they kiss. He kisses her on the lips. And she cries out in pain. Again, no words, but she cries out because her jaw is, still, is getting worse and worse. And he just nods, almost imperceptibly. You can barely see him nodding. And she kind of looks at him with some kind of compliance, and he leads her into the basement by the hand. He gathers a bunch of tools like pliers and whatnot, and he gives her a big glass of alcohol to drink. Again, no words. He puts some towels behind her head very carefully. It's, it's like it's, everything is done very carefully. It's very like a ceremony or something. And he puts some towels behind her head so she can rest her head on something soft. She, she leans back, and she's starting to breathe fast. She knows what's about to happen. He's going to try to pull a tooth out of her head, and her adrenaline is starting to pump, and you can tell. He starts to put the pliers in her mouth because he's going to pull his tooth out, and it's a back molar. It's the far back molar up top, and she stops him. You can tell that she's having second thoughts about this whole thing. So he stops. He doesn't push it. He waits. He looks at her in a caring way, but he's got some intensity to it. And she thinks it over for a second, and then she lowers her hand, and Philip proceeds. He grabs the tooth in the back with the pliers and is trying to twist it to pull it out, right? He's got to dislodge it, so he's, he's twisting like you would a ratchet or something. But the tooth is, isn't budging, and you can hear the metal scraping on the enamel, and it just, it's just that dentist horrible sound, you know? And she's making noises as if she's in pain, moaning, you know, like, uh, uh. and he, he breaks a portion of the tooth off and he pulls it out and he sighs in disappointment because he didn't get the whole tooth. He just got like, like part of the tooth out. She looks at him as if to ask him a question and he, and he looks at the portion of tooth that he has and he shakes his head as if to communicate I'm sorry, we have to try this again. Again, no words. So this is all being communicated. They're, they're definitely communicating. There's a lot of intense things happening, and there isn't a single word spoken yet. She spits out some blood in her mouth. He leans back in. She, she leans back. He starts to go back into her mouth with the pliers, and she stops him again, and he, she grabs his arm. But this time she seems more terrified than before, as if to say, it's, this was bad the first time, and this time you're probably going to have to be even harsher, and this is, so this is terrifying to me. And he looks at her, 
and he's moved by her fear. He, he's, he's terrified now too. At first he was just going to go in and, you know, and do this thing. And then she looks at him with this terror in her eyes and, and he's moved by that. She lets go of his arm and grabs his shoulders now as a way of kind of bracing herself for what's about to happen. He goes into her mouth again with the pliers. He starts pulling on the tooth. He starts wrenching on it like a ratchet. The, ca- the camera at this point does, and she starts to, you know, kind of squirm, obviously. And the camera does this super close-up on both of their faces. So close that it's just one eye. So at this point, you're just looking at one of his eyes and then one of her eyes and then one of his eyes. And you can see in his eye, just this one eye, it's communicating so much that he's, he's really struggling to get the tooth out. But you can also see that he's sort of pissed, he's sort of angry. He's almost becoming like a monster as he's just ranking on this tooth to get it out of her head. His, his, he, he, just a little backstory to this part in, I think, season three. He's really, really angry about the fact that Gabriel, their handler, and his wife, Elizabeth, are trying to involve Paige, their daughter, into the spy business. And he's been really angry and, and, and uncharacteristically explosive in his anger about, you know, he doesn't want his daughter to be pulled into the spy business. And at this point, again, no words. You can tell that that anger is emerging. When they do the close-up on her eye, you can see that she's even more terrified. She feels helpless and she's scared. And she can tell that he's, that his anger about involving their daughter in the spy business is starting to emerge and it's scaring her. And he has an almost murderous look on her, on his face. You know, he's, he's just like, you know, he wants to murder his wife for putting his daughter in danger. And all the while they're looking directly into each other's eyes. She's in utter pain and he's aggressively just ranking on this tooth. Again, no words. Tears are coming out of her eyes at some point. He's twisting and turning the tooth at the pliers. He's grunting and he's working on it. She's moaning in pain, but really quietly because the kids are upstairs. He manages to, to pop the tooth out and she moans in relief. And his face says, thank God it's over. She turns and spits blood on the ground. She looks at Philip. Again, super close up. It looks like she's worried about him. She has a, a kind of worried look about what he's going through right now. And then the scene just ends. It's one of my favorite scenes of all times, of all time, uh, movies included. It, you know, it's up there with Game of Thrones scenes, like that fight between Brienne and the Hound, or the whole Battle of the Bastards fight, or when the Mountain and the Viper fight, or the Hold the Door uh, scene. It's just, there's so much happening and there's so much backstory that feeds into that one scene. And it's just masterful writing, directing and acting. You know, you're taking a big risk 
with this kind of scene. It's like, okay, because the scene, if you just wrote it down in a script, you'd say Philip quietly pulls her tooth out. (laughs) But the mastery of telling a story within that and all those backs and forths and all those subtleties and all those things being communicated, and again, without any words, if this was a poorly written script, there would be all this melodramatic talking and screaming at each other, you know, Hey, you're being a little too harsh with that, with those pliers, because you're just angry about me involving Paige, aren't you? You know, I'm just trying to pull your tooth out, you know, sit back. I'm trying to help you. You got to calm down, husband. You know, like that's terrible writing, which I occasionally catch on cable uh, TV. Sometimes I'll come across just, that kind of drama and it's it's what i call just two people yelling at each other drama and it's just so dumb and lazy and stupid it's unrealistic it's it's it basically writers are like okay i have two things i i i want there there's an argument to be had and i want these two people to argue with each other about it because i think it's like people pay attention to people screaming at each other or something it's it's like the way that everyone loves Alex Jones and, or Donald Trump for that matter, because when people start getting angry and start yelling, even if you don't agree with what they're saying, you just sort of are drawn to it. And I just find it to just be horrible. I can't watch drama like that. And in this TV show, there's almost none of that, even though there's tons of conflict, so to speak. And there's tons of drama and there's tons of scary things, but there's almost never two people in a room yelling at each other because that's just not how people work. I mean, think about your own life. When was the last time you and another human being stood in a room by yourself and just screamed at each other for five minutes? When is, I mean, I, I got, I hope that that doesn't happen to you very often. I mean, for me, I'm trying to remember months, years ago that I can think of the last time that happened. <laughs> It's probably with Birdo, like, I don't know, five, ten years ago or something. It's an extremely rare occurrence that people do that. Usually people try to avoid conflict, one, or people are, if, if they're interesting, mature people, they will see the other side of the argument, you know, or anyway, the point is, is um, I hate that kind of writing and this kind of writing where you you have two people and all the nuances, the subtleties and the emotion. I just think it's amazing. Um, you know, there's so much happening in that scene. There's, there's a level of professionalism that's happening, happening in the scene because uh, Elizabeth is like, okay, I guess you got to pull my tooth out. And there's no arguing. There's no, she, she's just like a professional. I, I can't go to the dentist. There's no options. If I go to the dentist, there's a chance the FBI will be notified and then they'll track me down and that we don't need that attention. So it's time to pull this tooth out and I don't, I don't get any anesthesia and that's just the way it's going to be. And this is going to be painful and horrible, but that's just the way it's going to be. And so it's, and he same way, he's like, this is going to be horrible. I I don't want to do this, but this is what, this is our job. I'm going to pull out your tooth and this is going to be awful. There's also this intense level of trust going on between them. She has to trust him to uh, pull this tooth out and to not, I don't know, 
ram the pliers down her throat or something. And he has to trust her that she will trust him because if she pushes away or something, then that could be bad. And so they're the, the extreme trust. I mean, just imagine for yourself, if you had to take your spouse and without any anesthesia, pull out one of their teeth, just think of the amount of trust you'd have to have with each other. And the amount of trust that they have for each other is just so deep because they're basically a two-person army that is by themselves in the foxhole. And so that's super intense. Also, the anger involved from Philip, because he's generally not an angry guy, but he's getting more and more angry about the his daughter situation, Paige, and just the rage, the monstrous rage you see from him in this in this uh, moment is is very interesting. Also, I think it could be suggested, although I didn't really think about it at the time, but it could be suggested that this that this scene is very sexual, in that he's penetrating her, and she's in a lot of pain and bleeding. You know, it's sort of a well. Let's not go into that. But anyway, the, the point is, is there's kind of a sexual overtone in a sense. I, again, I don't see that, but I can see how other people might say that. Um, apparently, it took four hours to shoot this scene. Uh, and it was really hard work for the actors, particularly Matthew Reese, apparently, because he's bending over a lot and he's and he has to, you know, Liz, or um, Carrie Russell lays there. And she's doing a, a wonderful job, hard work for her. But he has to grab onto her tooth. So they put some kind of protective plastic over her tooth. And then with pliers, he's grabbing onto that plastic that is over her teeth and, and, and you know, pulling and stuff. Uh, and for Matthew Reese, just imagine how hard that would be, uh, again, for four hours. All right, so trauma is a big element in this TV show. What else can we say? The family system. They are ripped away from their families as young adults. Um, they, which is, you know, interesting and terrible. They have to act like they're married. Particularly, so they, they have some flashbacks to when they first came to the, to the States and they barely know each other, but they have to instantly act like they're married. And, you know, how, how tough that would be and how isolating that would be and how isolated they've been since the beginning because they can't tell anybody about anything and they have to keep their distance from other people. So it's very, so they're in the beginning, it's just the two of them isolated from everyone else and they don't, and they have to act like they're married and they don't necessarily like each other. Also the family system issues regarding introducing Paige to the spy stuff. Again, as I was saying earlier, this is drawn out over years of of story time and years of different seasons. And how the parents have this very big conflict around that. The essentially the mom, Elizabeth, wants Paige to enter their world and to fight the good fight as she sees it. Whereas and to grow up and to start taking responsibility. Whereas uh, Philip, the father, 
doesn't want that for Paige. He wants Paige to remain a kid and remain innocent. So how often do parents fight about that, right? <laughs> you know, uh, we need to start making her have responsibilities. No, she needs to be a kid. You know, like it's, just, it's, it's interesting how they interweave these very mundane suburban experiences for families, but infuse it very realistically and convincingly into the world of spies and um, where the, where the stakes are life and death, you know? Also, they they have a very interesting relationship with their handlers, with their contacts in the KGB. Uh, there are they have they have three or four different handlers, but there are two main ones. One's Gabriel, and one's Claudia. And they look to them kind of like parents, particularly Gabriel. And Gabriel is this mentor, and the way that they talk to each other is more like a father and you know, children relationship, which I thought was really interesting. And, and you got to figure like for the KGB, they're probably thinking, okay, Gabriel, you're going to be one of the only people that they can confide in. You're going to be one of the only people that they can talk to freely. You're going to be telling them to do terrible things and giving them terrible orders. You know, it would, it would work well, if you had a very fatherly relationship with them, one in which they loved you and one in which they greatly respected you and, and they kind of need a, a, a mentor at this point. And so, so it's, it's interesting to think about that too. All right, well, let's take a break and when we get back, we'll talk about the morality issue. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron yet, please do so by going to patreon.com. Go to patreon.com, become a patron, and when you become a patron, you get access to hundreds of premium episodes in which we do deep dives into various different things. One could say that our best episodes are the patron-only episodes. All right. What can we say about morality in this show? Well, Philip and Elizabeth, they kill a lot of innocent people, a lot of innocent Americans. On one hand, they believe that they're keeping the peace, right? They, and Elizabeth will say this sometimes in which they're like, well, this is, this is all for a cause. And if, and if one innocent person dies to save millions upon millions, then that's okay. Right. But on the other hand, Philip is really struggling. He's not sure if his actions are actually moral or not. Uh, and it and it just gets worse and worse as the seasons go by. For example, in the uh, you know I, I don't know if it's the end of season four, beginning of season five, they manage to steal a biological weapon from the Americans and they send it back to Soviet Union. And they think that this will help the peace. They think that they're doing this to help keep the peace because they believe if both sides have the biological weapon, you know, they're thinking, well, if the Americans are the only ones with the biological weapon then that will that will encourage the Americans to go to war because the Americans will think, well, if we go to war, we can wipe out, you know, all of the Soviets and be victorious and we can get rid of our enemy. But it the um Philip and Elizabeth and 
you know, others in the KGB are thinking, well, if we can steal their biological weapons and then make the Americans know we have biological weapons, then they won't use the biological weapons because they'll worry that we'll retaliate with the biological weapons. This is the same for the nukes, right? You know, if the idea was if only one side had the nukes, then they would just go to war and nuke the other their enemies. But if both sides have the nukes, then neither will go to war because they're worried about mutual annihilation. And so they steal this. So Philip and Elizabeth steal this biological weapon because they're thinking, okay, this will balance, this will, you know, provide balance of power and keep the peace. But then Philip learns that some Afghanis had had the symptoms of the biological weapon. So he steals the biological weapon, sends it back to the Soviet Union, and then he overhears this intelligence in which these, um, it was found that these Afghanis seemed to be suffering from a biological weapon. And, you know, in case you don't know, the Soviets, the Soviet Union, their Vietnam War was in Afghanistan. They, they were always trying to get control of Afghanistan and never really did. So, Philip wonders if his government used the biological weapons that he sent to them. And he's, he's really, he's wondering if his work is actually immoral or not. But Elizabeth is more sure of her commitment to the Soviet Union. So she doesn't, she doesn't have a problem with it. And she just trusts. And even if the Soviet Union used biological weapons against, against the Afghanistan, Afghanistan people, Elizabeth's like, well, I trust our government to do what's best for uh, the people of the Soviet Union. And you really feel that, too, because she really hates what America stands for. She hates capitalism. She hates religion. She comments on the excesses of American culture. She doesn't like how the poor are oppressed. She doesn't like how minorities and women are oppressed. She doesn't like... Reagan and his warmongering and they don't like the corruption in the government. And it's, it's just interesting, you know, and my, as I'm watching, I grew up during the cold war. I grew up worrying about, uh, nukes. I, uh, in fact, they show, I, I don't know what season, maybe season two or something. They show everyone watching the TV show the day after the day after was this, American TV movie that came out in 1983 and it had, for some reason, it just had a, a really awesome marketing campaign and like everyone in America watched it this one night. Uh, they would usually show movies on like Sunday night or something, but it was, uh, everyone watched it and it's about what would happen in an actual nuclear war and what, how, how many people would die. And it was one of the very first attempts at making a realistic depiction of a nuclear Holocaust. And it really scared a lot of people because prior to this depiction, and I remember in the seventies, I remember the, the duck and cover stuff. We, we, we would do these drills where, they would say, okay, if there's a nuclear bomb that goes off, you got to get under your table and duck and cover. And of course, looking back, we're like, that's ridiculous. If there's 
a, if there's a nuclear war, we're all dead. <laughs> we're either incinerated in the initial blast or we'll die of radiation poisoning or we'll die when our infrastructure and supply lines of food completely dry up or we'll die from water poisoning or we'll die from marauding raids of criminals. I mean, if we actually went to war with nuclear weapons, everyone's dead, particularly, particularly in my area. I remember they, we would talk about this in Seattle because there's a lot of military bases in, in Seattle uh, and uh, submarine bases and Navy bases and nuclear sub bases. So it was absolutely, you know, we were assured that we would probably die instantly if there was a nuclear war, nuclear war. And also we're very close to the Soviet Union in terms of their land-based ICBMs. So it was told to us that not only would we die instantly in the blast or soon after, but we wouldn't even know they were coming because we would be perhaps the first to get hit that the bombs, the, you know, the, the warheads would go off. We would be incinerated. We wouldn't even see anything and that would be it. And so the rest of the country would get these reports saying Seattle just blew up and then, and then they would see the warheads coming. I don't know how accurate that is, but I grew up thinking that, and I grew up feeling that, that fear extremely. Anyone from my generation knows what I'm talking about. There was a, I was um, 90% sure perhaps that that was my fate, that that's how I was going to die. Because, and it wasn't just like silly propaganda from the government or just um, a misunderstanding of our world. We had, I don't know, tens of thousands, I don't know, just a lot of warheads pointed directly at at USSR in the form of land-based ICBMs, you know, rockets. And then you had submarines that were just off the coast that had nukes on them. You had B-52s ready to take off from various different uh, bases that could, you know, blanket bomb warhead the entire, you know. And they, to us, they had nu- nuclear subs with with uh, nukes on them. And we were at war with them. It was a Cold War, but we were absolutely at war with the Soviet Union and they had the power with, with a press of a button to annihilate all of us. And we were not on good terms, particularly during the Reagan era, because he called them the evil empire. Now, looking back, it's like, why were we worried the Soviet Union was going to disintegrate uh, by the end of the decade in the 80s uh, for the most part? But, but we, had, we didn't know that. There was, there was no indication that the Soviet Union was going to disintegrate. It, the Soviet Union had been strong for decades and, had, and you know, had managed to put astronauts into space and had huge armies and had you know, just tons of land and tons of people and big industry. And Now, we didn't realize the corruption and the the sort of dissatisfaction that was happening within the political system. And, but even if we did, it, it didn't seem like it was going to go away. And I was totally convinced that there was a good chance because 
all it would take in in my mind and in the historian's mind too and people of the times mind was just a number of bad political moves and we're all gone the the uh, situation between uh JFK around Cuba and the um you know Soviet Union putting nuclear warheads pointed at us on Cuba we were extremely close to going to full out war with the Soviet Union in I don't know what year that was 62 63 or something and there were a number of other moments too and there were mistakes uh, like people would like our detection system would accidentally detect that we were being attacked that the missiles were on their way and people would say okay according to protocol i need to launch right now but let's hold off for a second because maybe it's a computer error and then it would be computer error so there were a lot of near misses we were on the edge of a knife during the 80s around this sort of stuff and i am just so happy i mean carl sagan almost every t- single time he talked he would end his talks with people we have to think about i, I can't obviously speak as eloquent as he did but he would always bring up the fact that we are headed toward nu- nuclear nuclear mutual destruction we are headed toward potentially ending life as we know it on this planet uh, eliminating ourselves as a race from this planet and so it was um it was quite scary and so this this show uh there's this moment when they watch the day after and you can just tell by their facial expressions and the things that and the how they're affected by it that uh this was this was very real to them the show also helps me to understand why we were at odds with the Soviet Union because it never really made any sense to me you know, I'm like they're on the other side of the earth what's the big deal <laughs> um it was a fight about how the world should look one model proposed a world in which everyone was equal the communist model there would be no rich people no poor people the state would be in charge the state in the soviet union was in charge of production and it the state distributes pr- the profits among everyone you know the no one owns the factories no one owns the the mines no one owns the stores everyone works and everyone gets 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 everyone benefits from the uh, actions of everybody no one owns anything only the state owns business everyone should get what they need even if they aren't able to work and this is a thing that i think a lot of people if they don't understand communism and have a very negative view of communism they don't understand this that the the communist model says everyone gets what they need everybody it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you're a citizen you get medicine you get food you get clothes you get a house um you know it's very egalitarian in that way of course this never really happened in the USSR um i'm not a historian or a political scientist but from what i understand their ideal never really manifested itself so 
that's just something to keep in mind that the you know we often associate communism with with what happened in the USSR but but um it's more complicated than that communism as a model well anyway i'm not a political scientist so god knows um and the other model is the american model the capitalist model propose a system that gives more wealth to those who manage to get it private organizations are in charge of production and these private organizations distribute their profits only among those who own the business, which could be just one man. Individuals are free to own things and they're free to do things and they're free to sell things if they want to. And only people who work hard deserve to gain wealth and power in this capitalist model. And also the capitalist model it leads to exploitation of people. And there uh, is a tendency for fully capitalist uh, governments and societies to end up with a very small amount of rich people exploiting 99.9% of the population. Whereas the communist model says no one is going to be rich. There is no one's going to be, no one's going to have that power over people. This is, we're going to have a very, flat hierarchy in this in this society whereas in the capitalism society we say well if you if you manage to gather wealth and power to yourself then you must have earned it and so now again that's not how the united states works entirely because we're not entirely capitalistic but but that's that that was the two um ideologies who were that were at war it was a it was a war of ideology and each saw the other as antithetical to themselves. The Soviet Union saw capitalism as just like a, a terrible way to treat your people. It, it created inequity. It created poverty. It created exploitation. And, and that was immoral. And so they saw themselves as spreading communism as a good thing for people. And Americans saw the Soviet Union as oppressive, as a lack, you know, you didn't have freedom. In America, and in, under the capitalist system, if you make, say, some earrings, and you want to sell it on the street, then you should be free to do that. It's the land of the free. Whereas in the Soviet Union, technically speaking, you can't do that. You can't have an, your own business of selling earrings. So it, it, was, a, it was a fight between freedom and individualism and collectivism and non-exploitation. So, so each side saw themselves as the good guys. And this show helps me to understand that better. There are moments in this TV show in which you really understand why someone would like communism over capitalism, particularly when Elizabeth talks about it. She acknowledges that life there's oft, there's often these debates between Philip and Elizabeth about life in America and she'll acknowledge to Philip that life is easier in America she says yes in the Soviet Union life is harder but she says but it's not better in America it's easier in America but not better she thinks that Americans are all privileged and naive she thinks that Americans are 
allowing the wealthy to, you know, exploit marginalized groups. But there's also this moment when Phillips, when Philip buys this fancy car, he buys this Camaro Z28. I remember this car in the eighties. It was a, it was like a sweet car <laughs> looking at it. Now you're just like, Oh, what a, what an eighties car. So at first Philip really likes this car and it's a symbol of Philip sort of falling in love with American capitalism and, and American culture. But after a scene in which he's doing his job as a spy and he's reminded of why he's in America, he no longer looks at the car in the same way. And this is another genius, just tiny little moment in this TV show. He, the characters, as I've been saying, they, they rarely say what's on their mind when, you know, they, they, they let you know what's on their mind by the way they act and the way the director and the cinematographer shoot the scenes. So there's this look that Philip makes when he sees his car. So, you know, I don't know if I'm describing this well, but he sees this car and he's like, oh my God, this car is sweet. I'm going to buy it. And he buys it. He brings it home and his wife, Elizabeth, is like, oh, interesting. You're buying a car. And then he does this job in which he is reminded of the fact that he's a Russian spy or a Soviet spy. And he comes out and he looks at his car and he just gives his car this, this little look. And that's all they do in the show. No words, no explanation, just this little look that Matthew Reese and his genius acting ability, he just looks at this car and you instantly know, oh, he's having a complicated feeling about that car right now. <laughs> and I know, I know what's going on there, just in that little look. Again, not to make fun of other shows, but I want to because I, I dislike lazy writing, as I was saying before. In another show with lazy writing, you would have him walk out and then, you know, so, someone would say something like, yeah, hey, nice car. And he and he would yell at them and say, like, you know, how, do, how dare you uh, compliment me on my car when there are starving people in Africa or, you know, there would be some kind of really just obvious line to tell us, oh, he now is upset about this car, you know. But in the show, it's this tiny little moment. And if you're not watching carefully, you might not even see it. That's how subtle this, this show is. Anyway, obviously, I'm in love with this show. All right. So that's all that I can really say about the psychology of this show, uh, which, you know, I say it's all, and I've been talking for an hour. But... Um, there's probably more I could say, but I kind of want to just move on and talk about some of the other things about the show. It's created by Joe Weisberg, who is a former CI officer. Isn't that cool? A former CIA officer created the show. Super rad. Stars Carrie Russell. She's probably the biggest star on the show. In the early 90s, she was on the Mickey Mouse Club, along with Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, Ryan Gosling, and Justin Timberlake. So that's interesting. She's been in a bunch of stuff, a bunch of TV, a bunch of movies, but some notable things. In 95, she was in Married with Children on one episode. <laughs> the biggest thing that I know her from is from Felicity from 98 to 2002. It was a very popular show at the time, and I remember her from that. She was also in a movie called Waitress 2007, 
excellent movie. She was also in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is a good movie, and she's been on The Americans. Um, Matthew Reese is the co-star of this show. He's a Welsh actor. He's been a he's been in a bunch of stuff that I haven't seen actually. I watched some trailers of him in other things, movies and TV, and it bothered me because I only see him as Philip Jennings. It's it's like it's when I see him in other movies, I'm like, oh, Philip is acting in other movies, <laughs> not Matthew Reese is acting. I was like, oh, why is Philip doing that weird accent? I think he's one of the best actors of our age, as I was saying earlier. He carries the show with his subtle acting of emotion. And again, the writers and the directors, cinematographers, they give him an opportunity to really shine in that way. I actually had a dream about him the other night. <laughs> I had a dream that I met him and I told him how amazing he was. We were at a party and he was a little tipsy. And we were lounging around on these big couches. I think there was like a, like a bonfire involved or something. And we talked about art for several hours, I remember. Um, in real life, um, I want to just talk a little bit about him and Carrie Russell. Given what I've read on the internet, which, again, could obviously be total, totally false, I think him, Matthew Reese, and... Carrie Russell, I think they started falling in love while the film, while they started filming the show. When they started filming the show in, in 2013, Carrie Russell was married with children. And during the first season, Carrie quickly became separated with her husband and started dating Matthew Reese. And they eventually got married and they had a son, Sam, which is a very pleasant name, Sam. Carrie's other kids are named River and Willa with her first husband. Matthew Reese, I think this is his first wife, if I'm not mistaken. Holly Taylor plays Paige. Uh, Kendrick Selati plays Henry. Noah Emmerich. Noah Emmerich plays Agent Beeman. In 93, he was in The Last Action Hero. In 97, he was in Copland. That's the first movie I really remember him from, Copland. Excellent movie. 98, he was in The Truman Show. 2002, Wind Talkers. I barely remember that movie. 2008, Pride and Glory. Pride and Glory 2008. Excellent movie. Edward Norton. Just an amazing movie. Pride and Glory. See it. 2011, Super 8. 2011, also Warrior. And 2016, he was in Jane Got a Gun, which I actually liked. The preview made it look stupid, but I actually watched it and liked it. Noah Emmerich. Richard Thomas is also in this uh, TV show, at least for a while. This is John Boy from The Waltons, for those of you that are old like me. That show, The Waltons, was so important to my early childhood. I, I think I've talked about this before in that there are things from my childhood that people know about, and there are things from my childhood that no one knows about. You know, like if you talk about the 70s, people say, oh, Saturday Night Fever and and you know, John Travolta and Grease, the, the musical movie, there's, just, there's certain things from the 70s that young people know about today. But there are other things about the 70s that seemingly no one knows about. And it's strange to me because the Waltons and Grizzly Adams and you know, these kinds of things were so huge at the time. And it's just weird how 
they just didn't survive to modern day, you know? And the Waltons were just, it was just a massive TV show. Eight is Enough. Remember that show? Eight is Enough. Um, and John Boy was sort of the star of the TV show, played by Richard Thomas. Richard Thomas is Agent Gad. Um, at the end of every episode, I think, of Walton's, they would go to bed at night in this, you know, they were farmers and they'd go to bed in this huge farmhouse. And there's a whole bunch of kids, you know. And they, you'd hear that there's the shots from outside the house and you'd hear them inside the house. Good night, mama. Good night, mama. Good night, John boy. Good night, Jim Bob. <laughs> and um, my family would say good night like them. We would, uh, me, I, you know, I grew up in a family of six. And so we would, we watched the Waltons and we would say goodbye. We would say good night like they did in the show. Um, actually, uh, my mom listens to the podcast, so I'll, t- I'll tell a little funny story about, about this. I hope she doesn't mind. We, uh, <laughs> my mom and my aunt uh, decided to go on a little trip and for 4th of July. It was 4th of July, and we're like, oh, let's go on a trip. And we, uh, our dads, for some reason, were out of town or something. I don't know. Maybe they're on a fishing trip or something. Who knows? But it was just, it was just mom's. And me and my younger brother and my cousin. And we're like, oh, let's go on a trip. And so we're like, oh, cool. We're going to go on a trip. And we go to Vancouver, BC, Canada. And 4th of July, uh, night arrives. And we're like, okay, let's go light off fireworks. And we quickly realize, oh, wait, we're in Canada. They don't celebrate 4th of July in Canada. <laughs> But that's not the funny part of the story. The funny part of the story is we're in a hotel, all of us, like, I don't know, there's my mom, my aunt, me, my cousin, my younger brother, and a a friend of us. So there's like six of us in this, in this one hotel room. And, and I, we, me and my cousin, we were probably like 12 or 11 or something. And one by one, we started doing the Waltons thing, you know, good night, John boy. Good night, Kirk. Good night, mom, you know. And my mom wanted to join in on the fun, and so she wanted to say good night, you know, somebody. But she stumbled on her words and she said something like gum and 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 we laughed. I swear to God for a half an hour. And to this day, 30 years later, <laughs> almost we can still get a laugh out of each other when we say, good welcome. <laughs> you probably had to be there. Anyway, um, Richard Thomas has been in a million movies and TV shows, actually. And I was so happy to see him in The Americans when he showed it. When he's, and he looks great. He's, he's not a super young guy, but he looks great. Although, I hate to say this, but I think he's the weakest actor on the show uh, by far meaning not that he's a terrible actor, but there's so many good actors on the show. Um, him and the older woman who plays their handler from time to time, the Margot Martindale uh, person, that's the actress. She, she plays, um, uh, what's her, Claudia. The Richard Thomas and Margot Martindale, so the Agent Gad and the Claudia characters, I think that they're... Uh, 
whenever they're on screen, I just kind of cringe because in comparison to the other acting that's happening, it's just not up to par. I can kind of tell, particularly with Mar- Margot Martindale, I can feel like with her, she doesn't know her lines very well, particularly in the, in her first, you know, early in the first couple seasons when she would show up, I felt like she hadn't memorized her lines very well. And so you can kind of tell there's like, there's a certain way that actors will act that you can tell they're, they stumbled on a line, you know, they'll pause not in a way that feels natural, but in a way that's like, Oh shit, I don't remember the next word. (laughs) And, I feel like Margot Martindale does that. I don't know. Anyway, I just don't like her style of acting or the way that they direct her in this show or something. And Richard Thomas too. It just seems stunted in some way. Although, uh, even though I'm giving Margot Martindale, the actress crap about this, she has won two Emmys for her work on this, on this show in 2015, 2016, which is bizarre to me. And she's the only, uh, so this is a TV show, so they don't go for Oscars, they go for Emmys, right? This TV show, even though it is by far, you know, one of the best TV shows of all time, up there with Game of Thrones, it's only won two Emmys. And the, those, the only two Emmys that it has won <laughs> has been with Margot Martindale. How in the world, and Margot Martindale is a, is a very small character comparatively to other characters, you know, like Matthew. I mean, it's a supporting actress, blah, blah, but still that this, that they're the, the Americans is getting robbed, robbed, particularly Matthew Reese, man, that guy deserves an Emmy. Totally. He's, I think he's only been nominated once and he lost, but anyway, um, I just want to go a little bit more Richard Thomas, uh, Jag here, John boy. He was in this movie in 1980 called battle beyond the stars. And it's this, it's this very big production movie, and it's this terrible Star Wars knockoff. Again, if you're old like me, you remember the post-Star Wars world and how after Star Wars in 77 came out, everything was about space, Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers. There was just all this space stuff. And Battle Beyond the Stars, when it came out, was just so obviously this production that was trying to capitalize on that wave of um, popularity. It was intended to be a take on Kurosawa's Magnificent Seven, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, but in outer space. And which is just funny when you think about that, they were trying to be like Magnificent Seven. I remember seeing this movie in the theater in either Bellevue or Redmond. I'm not sure. The full movie is actually available on YouTube. I watched some of it today. <laughs> so, I mean, you know a movie's bad when the people who own it don't monitor YouTube enough for it, you know, because right now you can watch the entire movie on YouTube. Um, I was so into space stuff in 1980. So I think I liked this movie. I remember the movie having this very otherworldly feel to it. it it definitely felt like another world <laughs> but it's a terrible movie the the movie was made after star wars and it came out the same year that empire came out and it looks like a bad star trek episode from the 60s it has the same you know when you think about star wars and empire and the 
special effects in, in those two movies. And then you watch this movie and you're just like, whoa, it looks like they're from completely different eras. Um, but it's interesting because James Cameron did the effects for this movie. It's one of his very first movies that he worked on. James Cameron started out as a special effects guy. And he wasn't the director for this movie. He was just the special effects guy. If you don't know who James Cameron is, he, James Cameron is, he's the guy who wrote and directed many of our modern classics, like The Terminator and Aliens and The Abyss and Terminator Two and Titanic and Avatar. James Cameron is, you know, just a huge movie maker, and he was the special effects guy for this movie. And it's, it's just laughable. He got praised for it at the time, apparently, but I don't know when you look back, it just looks, it looks, it looks fine if it was made in the sixties or early seventies. But when you think about it coming out after star Wars and after, you know, around the same time as empire, you're just like, uh, what's going on here? Um, the one thing I do remember about this movie, if I can just bore you with a little bit more Richard Thomas stuff here is John boys, uh, Richard Thomas's ship, it had this really weird look to it. If you can, look it up on YouTube or on Google. Uh, Battle Beyond the Stars spaceship. It looked like a living thing. It, it was organic. It kind of looked like the Enterprise, but it also kind of looked like, I don't know, like a, like a shark or something. Um, and I learned upon Googling this that this movie has a cult following. So just goes to show you that any piece of crap can get a cult following if it's epically bad enough, you know? All right. The Americans, it was, it's on FX, by the way. I think that's um, where you find it. I found it on Amazon prime and on, I don't know, on demand on cable. Now I do have cable now. So uh, anyway, Um, Rotten Tomatoes, they do it by by seasons and it ranges between 90 and a hundred percent. So, most critics are very favorable about this TV show. All right. Well, that does it for that long meandering sort of pointless episode of psychology in Seattle. If you're still listening, my God, you must either really love the Americans like me and let me know if you do, because boy, I love this TV show. It was one thing I'm sort of bummed out about is that, you know, I discovered this TV show just a couple months ago and have been powering through all the seasons since then. And, now I'm caught up and we're sort of at the end of season five and I'm totally bummed out because I, I can't binge on episodes. I have to wait until the next episode comes out. And then when season five ends, I have to wait a whole other year until season six comes out. I mean, geez, what, what kind of world are we, you know, living in here? It's so neglectful of my entertainment needs. You, so you're either a big Americans fan or you are you've fallen asleep already because some people listen to this this podcast as a way of falling asleep because my voice lulls people into boredom and then slowly into the stages of sleep so you might be you might be asleep by now oh my god i almost just fell over on my chair i shouldn't lean back that's dangerous okay well before i kill myself uh let me just end the episode please take care of yourself because you deserve it (laughs) 